It's wonderful to be back here again. It was a very nice session, at least from my perspective, last time. It was a pleasure and privilege meeting all of you. And um, I, It is a privilege to talk about the Prophet, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so I greatly appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, we will continue with that discussion. We, we will follow the same format uh, that we did, which is we will go on till about 4 o'clock and then we break for our prayer because that's around 4 o'clock. And then we come back for uh, an interactive session, question and answers and so on. Uh, you are, of course, welcome to ask me questions while we speak as well. But um, I'm hoping that I'm able to tell you some stories which, uh, you know, put things into perspective and so on. And then you can uh, you can ask your questions. The I want to begin with... Uh, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how the, uh, how God himself described Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. What did um, the Almighty God say about his messenger? And what he said is, in Arabic he said, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ He said, which means, we have sent you, O Muhammad, not but as a mercy to all the worlds. He said, we have sent you as a mercy. In, in Arabic grammar, it, the, when it's, when it's uh, struck, when the structure is like that, where we call the nafi, which is the, um, which is the denial comes before the isbat, before the statement, it uh, strengthens the statement. You are here, you are nothing but the head of this place. Is a stronger way of saying it rather than you are the head of this place. So it means specifically that. So you are nothing but a mercy. So he said, we have sent you not except as a mercy to all of uh, the worlds. <clears throat> so I think that's a, a good point to begin uh, with the, the whole importance of mercy, the importance of kindness. Uh, that is, I think, uh, if somebody asked me what is the fundamental principle of Islam, I would say it is kindness, it is mercy. That's the fundamental principle of Islam. And everything else revolves around that. Um, I think as, and of course, as we know, this is the uh, fundamental principle of, uh, you know, the other Abrahamic faiths as well. Um, my favorite uh, uh, Jewish story on this is the famous story of uh, the two great rabbis, uh, Shammai and Hillel. And this man comes to uh, Shammai and of course, as you know, he was a, Shammai was a, was a, was an artisan. He was, and he was obviously a great scholar, but he was also not known for his patience. He was, <laughs> he was, he was a, on a short fuse. So this man comes to him, this Gentile comes to him and he says, um, I'm willing to convert to Judaism if you can teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one leg. <laughs> now, why? I mean, imagine. I mean, this <laughs> so I, when I when I <laughs> when I heard the story, I said, "That's a strange request. I, why, why must you stand on one leg anyway? You know, I mean, <laughs> whole Torah or no whole Torah? I mean, why? Why one?" <laughs> so he said. Uh, 
I will convert to Judaism if you can teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one leg. So obviously Shammai's reaction was he pushed him away. He said, get out. <laughs> he said, I have not even talked to you. I mean, this, this is stupid. So he just pushed him. He said, go away. The man goes to Hillel and says the same thing. He says, I am willing to convert to Judaism if you can teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one leg. Hillel said to him, don't do to somebody what you don't want them to do to you. The rest is the explanation of that. Go learn. (laughs) (laughs) That's a... Yeah, that, that, that's beautiful. I mean, it's not just clever, but I think this is the essence, right? So he says, don't do. He says, the Torah is, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. And he said, the rest of it is the explanation. Go learn. So this is, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental, of course, as we know, in Christianity, the golden rule. <clears throat> so the uh, the fundamental basis of Islam is kindness. It is compassion. I want to quote from uh, Alphonse de la Martin's uh, History de la Turki, which is the history of Turkey. And Alphonse uh, de la Martin was the French uh, historian and many things. I'm quoting specifically from him because he was not known to be a, within quotes, a friend of Islam and Muslims. He was, <laughs> he was a very highly critical of, uh, of Islam itself. Because that, that was, those were the times. I mean, it was the, those were the times when these kind of criticality and so, oh, thank you so much. Now, he says in his book, he says, and I quote, if the grandeur of the aim, he mentions three specific things. He says, if the grandeur of the aim, the smallness of the means and the immensity of the results, three things. If the grandeur of the aim, the smallness of the means and the immensity of the results. If these three are the measures of a man's genius, who would dare humanly compare a great man of modern history with Muhammad? <clears throat> I think it's a very, um, I think it's a very insightful kind of a comment. He's mentioning very specifically three things. He's not just saying Muhammad was a great leader, so on, so on, so on, so on. No, he is saying very specifically three things. He says, if the grandeur of the aim, the smallness of the means, and the immensity of the results. Now, these three things are also paradoxical because if you have a, if I have a grand aim and I, then I should have the necessary resources in order to reach my my goal but here it's the opposite i have this grand aim but my means are practically non-existent yet i'm able to achieve that aim i'm able to achieve those results i mean the very fact that 1500 years later in a completely different culture in a completely different country uh, at the time of muhammad sallam's time i don't think they Anybody probably even knew that there was uh, America because, you know, the, the Arabs hadn't come to this part of the world. I mean, the, all, all the uh, Arabian voyages were in that part of the world, in the East. And so they didn't even know. But today, 1500 years later, we're sitting in America talking about Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, peace be upon him, that itself speaks volumes. So let me begin by uh, <coughs> setting uh, 
an atmosphere for this uh, by telling you some stories. I think stories are, you know, interesting. And also stories are human. So, they link to us as individuals. The first story I want to tell you is when uh, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, peace be upon him, uh, would have been maybe 19, 18, 19, 20, about, about that age. Uh, this is pre-prophethood uh, because he got, uh, the first revelation was when he was 40 years old. So this is about, we have still uh, another 20 plus years ahead before he is going to formally announce Islam. Now at that time, there was a... Uh, a tribesman who came from Yemen to Makkah. Now, Makkah was a kind of uh, local uh, center of trade. And one of the, or the biggest reason, there were actually two reasons. One reason was that Makkah also was the location of the house of God built by Abraham, uh, uh, which is called the Kaaba. So, the Kaaba was there. And people used to come there for pilgrimage. They would come and circumambulate and pray and so on and so on. Uh, over the years, they also collected a lot of idols around the Kaaba because a lot of the Arabs were idolaters. They used to worship idols. So, for example, they would come to the Kaaba and then they would say, you know what, it would be nice if I had my idol here um, and I could be simultaneously worshipping. <clears throat> so, they said, yeah, most welcome. Please come and put your idol. So, they did that and eventually over, over a period of time, the Kaaba collected almost 360 plus idols. But it was originally built by Ibrahim alayhi salam, by Abraham, uh, peace be upon him. And uh, it was the uh, a house of the one God of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So obviously there were no idols and, and so on in it. So these idols came later on and they were all collected there. Now, so people used to come from all over. Yes, people used to come from all over um, uh, Arabia for pilgrimage. Naturally, that created a market in the place, so it became a, a center of, you know, business. Also, what used to happen was that the Quraysh, who were the custodians of the Kaaba, that was a tribe which looked after the Kaaba. They also fed the pilgrims. They gave water to the pilgrims. And this was considered to be a great honor because the pilgrims were considered to be guests of Allah. So, they said, we are serving the guests of God. So, this was something which they, uh, they, they felt good about. So, um, they were also tradespeople. They were, they were businessmen. They were tradesmen. And they used to go north to Syria. What is today Syria? Syria is, a, is not the right term to use because there was no Syria at that time. It was called Sham. And uh, it, that whole area was today what is Syria, Jordan, uh, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, all of these countries together was one area. I mean, as we know, the nation states are, is, is a very uh, recent uh, historical phenomenon. I mean, there, there were no nation states as such. Uh, so, these were all empires. And, and, and Syria was really the Byzantine Empire, which is the Eastern Roman Empire. So, that's uh, where they used to go. And then they would go uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the winter, they would go south to Yemen. And Yemen was a satellite uh, and a, uh, a tributary state of the Persian Empire. 
So you had the, the Roman Empire in the north and you had the Persian Empire in the south. And, and the Arabs used to trade between them. The reason was that these two empires, these were the two biggest empires of the time and these two were at war with each other. But, you know, war or no war, uh, you have to trade. I mean, that's what's happening, for example, to China and, and the United States today. That's the reason why coronavirus is so bad because it happened in China. <laughs> so anyway, the, the, the point is that you still have to trade. And these Arabs became the middlemen or the, the, the people who brought goods from there and sold them to this empire and from here and they took them north. Uh, so Makkah became like a sweet spot in this whole journey north and south. It was their own place. <clears throat> they could stop there for, uh, you know, to take rest and so on and so forth. Plus it built a local, a local, um, market and then they would go north and south as they needed. So this is what, uh, was happened, uh, was happening. So in that time, there was this man who came from <coughs> Yemen. He belonged to a, a tribe called the Zabidi. So he brought some things to trade to Makkah. Uh, but he was a lone tribesman. He didn't come. He was not a wealthy man or something. So he had whatever goods he brought. So there was a, one of the uh, big noises in uh, Makkah was a man called As bin Wail. So As bin Wail said to him, I will uh, buy your things. So give them to me. When he gave them things to him, he told him, buzz off. Right? Sorry, I won't pay you. Now, this poor man, he was alone. And you know, in a tribal culture, if you don't have a tribe behind you, you are nobody. So, this poor guy now, he lost all his things. <clears throat> so, he tried to plead with him and so on. But Asbil well told him, you know, go away. Now, this guy happened to be, he was, he was resilient. He was not going to take that. So he went and he climbed up on a, on a hillock and he started screaming and he, you know, started yelling and cursing and so on. Some people said, what happened? He said, this, the, these are the kinds of people you are and you say you are this and that and so on and so on and you are steal things from people and, you know, I've been robbed by this man and he, he, the man, he refused to buckle into that pressure. He says, do what you want, but I'm going to make sure that everybody. So in that process, a whole bunch of, now people obviously heard all this. So, a lot of the leaders of the Quraysh, which included the uncle of uh, the Prophet ﷺ, Abu Talib, and several others, they got together in a, in the house of a man called uh, Abdullah bin Judah, who was considered to be, uh, he was also the oldest, the, el the, uh, the eldest of the Quraysh, and he was a very wealthy man. And he was considered to be one of their leaders. So they all got together and they said, look, this is very bad. This just gives us a bad name everywhere. And, you know, we, we can't be known as people who are stealing things and so on and so forth. So they formed a alliance, which is called Helpful Fudul, uh, which means the alliance of or league of the virtuous. <clears throat> they said, we are going to form this league and we will ensure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. So the first thing they did was they got hold of the other man and said, give back his things. You can't, you can't just take things like that. They made him pay. They enforced that and uh, they wrote up a, a charter. Now, Muhammad Wasallam, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was part of that group because his uncle took him along with him. So he was there and he was one of the signatories to that, uh, to that document. Now, many years later, 
uh, in, a, in, a, in, in which is mentioned in the hadith, uh, many years later, uh, Muhammad sallallahu said, I was there in Abdullah ibn Judah's home when the oath was affirmed. In my opinion, that oath is more pleasant to me than owning red-haired camels. Now, a uh, red camel is, was the, you know, the, was the ultimate. It was, yeah, it was a Ferrari of the, <laughs> of the time. So he said, it's for me, that oath is more valuable than owning those camels. And he said, even today, if I am invoked, if I am summoned by that oath, I will honor it. Now that statement is very, <clears throat> very significant for the simple reason that he made that statement decades after this happened when he had already declared his prophethood when he, when Islam was established and he's speaking to Muslims. The oath was taken pre-Islam. So the people who took the oath, all the signatories to that oath, they were not Muslim. But he's saying even today, if they call me, if they invoke me, Based on an oath which was really written up by non-Muslims, it doesn't matter. I will honor that because it stands for justice. So it, it gives, uh, uh, you know, it helps us to understand the significance and importance of justice in Islam and of kindness, of standing up for, uh, for somebody who, uh, who, needs, uh, who needs support. The second story I want to tell you is... Uh, is a story of sanctuary and we are sitting in uh, in this church which is uh, which is a sanctuary church i think it's a important story to, to to talk about now that comes at the end of when he when the prophet sallallahu uh, when he declared his prophethood at the age of uh, at the age of 40 uh, from the age of 40 to the age of 53 for 13 years in Makkah, it's a story of persecution. It's a story of continuous persecution. Uh, the people who came to him were people who were poor. They were uh, women. They were ex-slaves. Uh, many of them were African people. Uh, they were people who were, you know, some some people came to him who were also wealthy and they were people from the Quraysh and so on. So in the, in the hierarchy, they were on the top. But that was a, a small a small number, the majority of them were people like this. So there was continuous persecution. I, we, I, we don't have the time to go into all the stories relating to that, but uh, to the extent that it almost ended in one of the last things was uh, where the Prophet Muhammad and his whole family and their tribe were embargoed. To use a modern term, it were. Uh, they were, they were sent off into a valley and they cut off complete relationships with them. They said nobody will sell them anything. No one will buy anything from them. No one will marry in there with them. Uh, no one will speak to them and so on and so forth. Now, in a tribal culture, that's a death sentence. That's simple as that. Because if nobody will buy from you, nobody will sell to you, then you can't get food, you can't get anything. And you can't even sell what you produce in order to make some money, nothing. You know, so they said no barter, no selling, no nothing. We cut off complete relations uh, with these people. Now, in that process, uh, two of the dearest people to the Prophet ﷺ died. His wife died. Uh, Khadija radiallahu anha, she passed away in that year. And also his uncle Abu Talib, who was his greatest support, he also died. 
during that period of of uh, of trial to the extent that in uh, arab history and in the sira in the biography that year is called the year of sadness amul huzn it's called the year of grief the year of sadness because it was so terrible for him so at that time uh, he um, was looking for a place to go because makkah became completely untenable it was impossible to to live in his own uh, birthplace so he was looking for a place to go and the people from a, a little oasis about 400 miles north called yathrib uh, they invited him to come and stay with them um so eventually he migrated he when we say migrated it's not uh, i mean he didn't sort of say you know i'm going to go there get a job with ge or something i mean he's he's, he's talking about literally as a refugee you know is is to save his life he is he has to leave and he literally left uh, under threat because there was a death sentence on him they they uh, put a dead wanted dead or alive kind of uh, thing uh, of and they, and they announced a prize of 100 camels now 100 camels was like big 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 money in those days so they said dead or alive 100 camels so he and his uh, his close friend and companion abu bakr radhiyallahu anhu they uh, they escaped they they literally walked from makkah to madina uh, they had interestingly they had their guide was not a muslim guy he was a non muslim person but he was a friend of his so he guided them um there are many beautiful stories related to that but the point is that they reached madina where the people of madina <coughs> which is yathrib it it called it got the name when he reached there they called it madina munawwara uh, the city of uh, of brightness the city of light because the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam came there uh, so he they gave him sanctuary now when they gave him sanctuary he established uh the system of sanctuary which is so beautiful what he did was that he said that all the refugees who come here right we in in uh, sira in the in islamic uh, terminology we call them emigrants uh but i want to make this point that they were not emigrants as in what we understand today by these are emigrants and so forth now, this this is not the same thing it's a very different thing these were people who uh literally quite literally they lost everything in order to go and be with muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam i'll tell you a, a story in that connection to illustrate that but what he did there was the system that he established he did not say let us create a um you know a, a, an orphanage for the orphans or let us create a refugee home what he did was he said one person in madina who is a local will take one refugee one emigrant as his brother this person will live in their house he will share with him in his life now the local people imagine the the, the kind of response there was the local people in madina they went to the extent of literally coming and saying half of my property is yours quite literally i mean i i i will write this to you half of my pro- so if i have two houses one house is yours if i have two gardens one garden is yours and so on and so on the 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 emigrants did not take it because obviously it would be you know they they didn't want to take away thing but this was actually offered to them 
but they did not take that but they lived together they lived together and they lived together as so close as brothers that today just to uh, when we read the stories it looks almost unreal and you say how could people be so close to each other let me tell you two stories connection connected with that one to show how they lost everything one of the emigrants was a man by the name of suhaib he was called suhaib ar-rumi he was called suhaib the roman and it's not because he was roman uh, suhaib was actually from yemen he was an arab but he had been kidnapped the romans used to raid so in a roman raid his mother his he he was he was he was the son of a chieftain so his mother took him uh, took this little boy to uh, you know today i mean to, uh, calling this a beachside resort would be like <laughs> i don't think there are resorts <laughs> but you know she took him to this beachside uh, beachside village uh, for a holiday and for their uh, fate uh, in one night the romans raided and uh, we don't know what happened to the mother but this little kid got captured and he was taken away to north to uh, to syria so there he was sold as a slave <coughs> he st- he stayed with a with a uh, byzantine roman family he used to speak uh, latin he he learned he studied and so on and so on he became quite uh, knowledgeable i think they treated him well I mean, he was a slave but you know they treated him well and so on um in the process what happened however was that his arabic became accented because he was, he used to speak uh, latin so he got this title of uh, suhaib the roman because the arabs were very particular about their language you know if you spoke it with an accent then you were somehow uh, sort of not acceptable so he was called suhaib ar-rumi now uh, he then got sold to somebody in makkah as a, he again came to makkah as a slave now he was educated he was uh, talented he could you know do things and trade and so on so he said to his uh, to his master he said look there's no sense in making me dig holes or something you know that i i'm uh, better than that uh, so why don't i you and i enter into business i will do business and i will share the profits with you so this master said well you know this is good i mean i don't have to do anything i still get, i make money so they became business partners uh, whatever whatever was the a uh, percentage of partnership and suhaib ar-rumi became very wealthy himself he became wealthy his master became obviously wealthier so now when suhaib ar-rumi when muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam uh, he he announced islam suhaib became a muslim so his master now used to keep us a very close eye on him to see that he doesn't run away to to madina because this guy is worth money right he's he's making money for me i don't want i don't want to lose him but one day suhaib ar-rumi radhiyallahu anhu he escaped now as he is on his way they they realize he is gone so they sent a, a party behind him to catch him um so it was literally sort of race through the desert it got to a point where suhaib ar-rumi realized that he can't escape them so he there was a hillock he climbed on top of the hillock and he there were some rocks on top so he hid behind the rocks these people surrounded him so now it's a stalemate you know they they've surrounded him he's on top of the hill like how how long are you going to sit there then they started closing the circle they started coming up so suhaib ar-rumi said to them he said you know i am a he was he was known he was a he was an archer so he was known for his uh, archery skills so he said you know i am very good with my bow 
and I have one arrow with your with each one of yours name written on it. <laughs> so it's up to you. You want to come and collect your arrow, you know. <laughs> You're welcome, right? So that stopped them because they knew they they they, they knew this guy could uh, could shoot. So now what do you do? It's a very it's a very salutary story. Um, Swayab so Rumi says to them, "You are after me because of my wealth. You don't want. You don't care one way or the other if I'm a Muslim, not Muslim, nothing. But you don't want me to go away because of my wealth. I have money in Makkah." He said, "How about I tell you where I kept my treasure? Go take it. I'll give you the location. Right? Go take it. Let me go." They agreed. Now the interesting thing is, if you were in that situation and you had this guy stuck on top, and he tells you, uh, and say say there are you know twenty of you around, right? Twenty of us. Now this guy says, um, "I'll tell you where my treasure is. Go take it. Let me go." What would you do? All twenty won't go away. I mean, it would make no sense for everyone to. How do you, how do I know he's not lying? So what you would do is send one person say go look, and then if the treasure is in fact there, come back and tell us, right? And then we let him go. They didn't do that. They did not do that, and they left and went away, and they let him go. So he reached Madina, and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam knew what had happened because Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Sent him a message through Jibreel to the angel Gabriel to say, "This is what is happening to your friend." So when Suhaib or Rumi came, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said to him, "That was a fantastic bargain." He said, "You made a very good bargain." What's the bargain? He lost everything for Islam, for being with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He lost everything. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said that was a very good bargain. Now to come back to the story, how did they leave him and go away? A very interesting thing which I discovered some years ago. I was in South Africa, and I was speaking to a group of uh, parliamentarians and, uh, and and judges, and they said to me a very interesting thing. They said to me that during the apartheid days, so this is the white supremacy rule apartheid in South Africa. Uh, those people were Dutch Reformed uh, or you know Christians. I mean, they, they were they were basically uh, Dutch and and some English and so on and so on. They're very devout people. I mean, they, the white supremacy thing is a different issue. But as far as 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 Christians, they were devout people and they were very uh, within quotes very virtuous in the, in that sense. Gambling was not permitted in South Africa in those days and all kinds of things. Now, interestingly. Muslims, South Africa, in, in South Africa, Muslims in a court of law were not compelled to take an oath on the Quran or Bible or anything. Muslim witnesses, their word was just taken like that without taking an oath. So I said, why? He said, because Muslims don't lie. Muslims don't lie. So I said, what about today? He said, well. No longer the case. We are. We have to. I said, why? Because he said, because we lie. 
He said, I'm very sorry to say that, but this is the problem. But he said, this was the reputation of Muslims to say Muslims don't lie. Because in, in Islam, lying is a supreme, it's, it's a major sin. Very major sin. So, Suhaib Rumi, I'm talking about this issue of sanctuary and how, uh, you know, people went there and how they did that. Now, the issue of closeness, of living together. There were two of the, of the Sahaba, the local man, uh, his name was Abu Darda Al-Ansari. And his emigrant brother was Salman Al-Farsi. Now, Salman Al-Farsi was from Persia. That's why it's called Farsi. So he had come from Persia, he accepted Islam. So he was a, he was a Persian man, spoke Farsi, didn't speak Arabic. His brother Abu Darda uh, was a local Arab from Medina. So they lived together. Now, one day Salman al-Farsi comes home and he sees uh, Abu Darda's wife uh, in a state where she didn't look like she uh, was really taking care of herself and you know maybe she whatever she, she she looked like under the weather kind of thing so he asked her so what's what's wrong with you why are you looking like this you know why 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 you don't why don't you take care of yourself now put yourself in that situation he, these are two people who are living together in the same house uh, they are supposed to be brothers in faith right um, in our culture and our countries and our world today even your own blood brother, if you see your sister-in-law, would you talk to her like that? You know, what level of closeness and what level of mutual trust does it imply to be able to say to the woman, you know, why are you looking like this? I mean, what's, uh, why don't you take care of yourself? She says to him, what is the point in me taking care of myself? Your brother is not interested in me anymore. So he said, what happened? He said, what happened? She says, you know, he prays all night and he's fasting all day. So where's the time for me? Right? I mean, he, 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 he's become so devout that he's all night he's praying and all day he's fasting. So he has no time for me. So Salman al-Farsi said, I'll fix that. So now... Abu Darda comes home and he brings lunch for his brother Salman. So Salman says to him, sit down and eat with me. Abu Darda says, I'm fasting. He said, no, you're not fasting. Break your fast. It's not Ramadan. It's not a fard fast. It's not a compulsory fast. You are, this is, this is a voluntary fast. So break the fast. He said, I, I, I made the intention of fasting. I, I don't care. You break the fast. He said, what is this like? This is oppression. I don't, you, you break your fast, eat with me. <laughs> right? So, Abu Darda says, okay, you know, what to do? This man is, is in my house. He's my brother. I have to listen to him. So, Abu Darda breaks his fast. He eats with him. In the night, now they are, they are sleeping. So, in the same room. So, Salman al-Farsi lies down to go to sleep. Abu Darda gets up. He said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to pray. He said, lie down, sleep. <laughs> the, the first prayer is over. I mean, the night, night prayer is over. The next prayer is in the morning. Okay, in the night you will pray, but mm, why you start now? No. Go to sleep. So the said, for God's sake, I mean, I, I want to pray. Right? He said, no, sleep. 
So he lies down for a while. Then he thinks that Salman al-Farsi is sleeping. He gets up. He says, where are you going? <laughs> he says, I'm going to pray. He says, no, no pray. You sleep. Now this happened three, four times. Abu Dhabi Radhaan, who is sick and tired of this, you know, this oppression. But anyway, closer to the morning, they both get up, they make wudu, they both pray, and then they go to the mosque for the morning prayer with the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So after the morning prayer, it was the way of uh, of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace be upon him. After the uh, the morning prayer was over, you you have seen how we pray, right? So there's the Imam who leads, and then the people are behind. So. After the prayer, the Prophet ﷺ used to turn around and sit, and then he would talk to the people. He would advise them. He would ask someone, "Have you did you see a dream?" So then, you know, somebody would narrate a dream, and the Prophet ﷺ would interpret the dream for them. And these kind of things he used to do. It was a kind of gathering which uh, every day it happened for a, you know, for maybe an hour or something. So that day, when they turn around, Abu Darda says, "Ya Rasulullah," he says, "Oh, the Prophet of uh, of Allah, I have a complaint against my brother." He says, "What? What's your complaint?" He says, "This is what he's doing. He, he won't let me fast. He won't let me pray. This, this." Now see the the the, the way of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also. He doesn't just react to what somebody is saying. He says, "Did your brother give you a reason?" Right? Did he give you a reason? I mean, he told you eat and so on. Did he give you a reason why he why he is insisting on this? Abu Darda said yes. He gave me a reason. What's the reason? He said that he's my brother said God has a right, your wife has a right, and your body has a right. Give to each their right. Right? Huh? He said this. He said this is the, he said this is the reason he gave me. He said Allah has a right, your wife has a right. And your body has a right. Give to each one their right. The Prophet ﷺ said, "Your brother has spoken the truth, because you are neglecting everybody. You are neglecting your your body's rights. You are putting yourself to all this, you know, exertion. Uh, your wife has uh, has her needs. You are ignoring your wife, and you are saying, no, I am only uh, focusing on God.' He said, no, doesn't work like that. Allah has a has a right." Your wife has a right. Your body has a right. Give to each one their right. And the Prophet ﷺ said, "Yes, your brother spoke the truth. Do that." Now that is the level of closeness. So when we are saying sanctuary, we are saying helping each other. It is something which is, uh, you know, it's it's so uh, beautiful to think as as an example, even in today's world. Um, I remember many uh, many many years ago, somebody mentioned this thing to me. In India, one of the great scholars, he was invited to inaugurate a, an orphanage. Somebody built an orphanage. Uh, he was invited. He refused. He said, "I will not do it." He said, "Why?" He said, "Because this is not how Islam teaches us to look after orphans." He said, "The orphan must live in your home as your child. You stick him in an orphanage with caretakers. It only makes him feel more." Rejected, it makes him feel more alone. Physically, you are taking care of them. That's true. You are giving them, a, you know, a, a, a safe environment. You are giving them good food and so on. The caretakers are taking care of them, but psychologically, the orphan just doesn't need bread. He needs to feel a presence of parents. He needs to feel uh, being part of a family. That's not happening because you are sticking them into an orphanage. 
Islam teaches us to look after orphans in our own homes. This is the, the right thing to do, which is raise the orphan child as your own child. Right. So this is the, the whole uh, focus on, um, on kindness. Um, we talked about uh, uh, women's rights, for example. The last time I said, you know, one of the very revolutionary things that uh, happened at that time and revolutionary even in today's, uh, in today's context, if you look at it. Uh, for example, this year is the 25th year of, uh, of women voting uh, in the US, right? This is the 21st, 25th year that women have been a um, hundred for white women. A hundred for oh, okay, one hundred for white women. That's my alarm to say uh, that if I don't eat my medicine now, I'll turn into a frog. <laughs> now, unless you like to talk to Kermit. No, we'll break. No, no, we we'll, we'll break, we'll break in another 15 minutes or so. Okay. Yeah. So. Because it's 3.45. Will you be aware of that or shall I alert you? No, I'll be aware. <laughs> <laughs> now, talking about women's rights, the um, there's a wonderful story. <laughs> this uh, young lady came to the Prophet and she said, my father has uh, married me to this man and that man the father married to was, uh, was her cousin in, in, or related to her and I refuse. I don't want to marry him. But she said, my father arranged the marriage and uh, I was married to this man but I refuse to, you know, I, I refuse to stay with him. I, I will not be married to him. And she came along with some other friends of hers. So there was this, you know, imagine this, this uh, sort of delegation of women, of young women who came to the Prophet ﷺ. So Rasulullah ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ said to, said to her, why, why would you, why don't you want to stay with him? I mean, what, what, is there something wrong with the man? She said, nothing is wrong with him. He said, is there anything physically wrong with him? He said, no. Um, is there anything wrong with him in his religion? Right? Is he, or his character or something? I mean, what? She said, no, he's fine. He's uh, nothing wrong in his religion, nothing wrong in his character. The Prophet said, then why? He said, no, I, 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 I refuse. He told her, you know, your father wants the best for you. He picked what he thought was the best for you. Uh, he said, no. So the Prophet said, if that is the case, then I will annul your marriage. You can divorce him, right? I will annul your marriage. So he says, if that's what you want, your marriage is annulled. She said, Ya Rasulullah, no, wait. Huh? He said, now what? He said, don't annul the marriage. She said, he said, what? He said, now what? She says, I just want people to know that my father does not have or a father does not have the right to arrange a marriage for his daughter without her consent. He has to ask her and she has to agree. 
Is this correct? The Prophet says, yes, it is correct. That's the reason why I have agreed to annul your marriage. He said, no, no, the man is fine. I am okay to marry to <laughs> I am okay to I am okay to be married with him. Right? I just want to make this point. People must understand this, that they just can't do this, they just can't marry, you know, uh, just, just sort of marry off their daughters. No. We have a right and we have to be able to say yes or no. And the Prophet says, yeah, this is what Islam gives you. You have a right to do that. Now, the point is that it is, uh, if you think about this in the context of the time, I mean, this is, this is, uh, in, in many cultures today, to this day, this doesn't happen. Our culture, for example, in India is, is, is one of the classic ones like this, right? But, uh, especially in that day, this was something which was so uh, revolutionary. In, the, the, in terms of women's rights in Islam, Islam gives some uh, rights to women which are which are quite quite literally amazing. Uh, first of all, in a in a, at a time when women were treated as property, I mean, for, forget about rights. I mean, they, they were they, they were bought and sold. They were inherited, as I mentioned to you yesterday, which was I mean, how nasty is that? But in those days. Uh, to give women complete equality with the men, uh, they can inherit property, they can bequeath property, they can own property, uh, they can earn an income for themselves through business or whichever way. They have complete control over their finances and they do not need to even inform their husbands about what their net worth is. Husband doesn't even need to know. Right? Now, um, the woman was given the right to be able to pay zakat, which is obligatory charity, to the husband. And there's a famous story about that. One of the closest companions of Rabbi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, who, who, who's, he was, a, he was also a great uh, scholar, Abdullah bin Masood, radiallahu anhu, uh, he was a great scholar and he was almost completely engaged in, in study and so on with the Prophet Sallallahu So he was not very wealthy. He was, he was actually quite poor. But his wife, Zainab, was a businesswoman. So she was wealthy. So she comes to him because he's a scholar. She comes to him and she says to him, uh, I have to pay my zakat, my obligatory chari uh, charity for the year, which is 2.5% of your, uh, of your wealth. In Islam, that's what you are obligated to pay in charity. Uh, 2.5% of your wealth, which is gold, silver, and cash. And in terms of trade goods and so on and so forth, uh, you know, without going into the details. So roughly it's 2.5% of your, uh, wealth. It's not income. It's wealth. So she said that, uh, and, and that's at the end of each year. So she said, I am calculating that. I, this, I have this money. Uh, can I pay this to you? Because you are poor. Now, first of all, imagine this conversation itself. Right? Imagine this conversation itself. How likely is it even in today's world? Right? So, he doesn't get offended. He does not get offended. He doesn't say, you know, how can you call me poor? No. So she says, can I pay this to you? He says, I don't know. I don't know. So she said, then go and ask the Prophet ﷺ. He said, I won't ask. You go ask. Why? It's your question. You go and ask. 
right today people think that really i'm saying people sometimes think no 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 how can my wife go alone and talk to the to the, to the scholar how i have to go with her no she has a right to go it's her question she can go he said you go and ask she said you come with me she said no he said no you go so she went now when she went there she knocked on the door bilal radhiyallahu anhu was there he said she said can i see the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam said who is it uh she said zainab he said which zainab because zainab is a, is a common name he said zainab the wife of abdullah bin masud so he invited her she came there were a couple of other people with the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam she said ya rasulullah he said oh the messenger of allah uh, i have money i am to pay my zakat my husband is poor can i pay my zakat to my husband what does he say first and foremost he says see what a wonderful question she is asking what a very good question she is asking and then he said to her you can pay your zakat to your husband and if you do that you will get twice the reward one for the zakat which is the normal reward and the second one for helping your husband right however the husband cannot pay zakat to the wife zakat is the obligatory charity the husband can't pay it to the wife the wife can pay it to the husband why because for the husband to take care of his wife is obligatory on him so he can't he can't pass off his charity on that no 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 whereas for the wife she can give charity if she wants when huh? this is the level of rights to the extent i mean it's 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 quite amazing uh some of this stuff you know i mean, don't look at it from our current uh, gender uh, equality uh, you know things but see it in the context of that a muslim woman has the right to demand compensation for breastfeeding her own children really that's yeah true. that's true yes yes that's in judaism as well yeah <laughs> No seriously because because it the, the issue is that it it is it the, the children are the responsibility to take care of them is responsibility of the husband and if the wife is doing it even though they are her children but she is like doing a favor to him I mean I don't know of anyone who actually demanded this but the point is that this is what the law gives them she can actually demand this to look after the parents for example in in cultures of joint families right um the the husband's parents are living with them uh, for the wife to, in in many in many joint family cultures in my culture for example in india uh, looking after the mother in law father in law is considered to be this is the duty of the woman in islam no it's sorry it's not duty it's the duty of the man your parents you look after them if your wife looks after them then she is doing a favor to you and to the parents so you show your gratitude it's it's not her it's not her job but her own parents she is it's her duty and she is permitted to take care of her parents and the husband has no right to stop her from doing that now all of this comes to that finally two um two uh, quick stories which i think are very important uh before we we break off one is i began by saying that the uh the whole atmosphere of islam is an atmosphere of kindness and mercy and the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam himself was sent as a mercy to all of 
creation. I, I, I'm skipping over a lot of the history, but one of the things which happened was that in the in the uh, after he, he he took refuge in Medina, um, then he came back to Makkah in the tenth year, and at that time he came to Makkah as a conqueror. So he came at the head of an army of ten thousand uh, soldiers, right? Uh, they were they were the treaty between the Makkan people which they broke and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm not going into all the history of how that happened, but it happened. But it was a strange uh, strange conquest because it was a completely bloodless conquest. Uh, there were no no one was killed. Uh, he came into Makkah when he entered at the head of the army. He was bent down like that, bowing in submission to his lord. In gratitude for having brought him back to his motherland, to his to his to his homeland, and uh, he was he praised God and he he he, um, he he said some things. He said, uh, "Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala has defeated my enemies by Himself," and he sadaqa wada. He said, "Allah has kept the promise to His slave, and He's helped His slave, meaning Himself," and He gave him this. So when they came to Makkah, the usual norm, uh, as far as all conquests uh, were concerned of the time, was that the uh, the conqueror takes all, right? So you know it's free for all. Uh, you can you can loot, you can do whatever you like. Now in Makkah, none of that happened. He came to the Kaaba and he stood there and he called the people. The people came. He said, "What must I do with you?" They said, "You are the honored son of our honored brother. You are the honorable son and the honored son of our honored brother." He said to them, "You are all free. You are all free. Just go home." Now, interesting thing is, you're all free is fine. I mean, you know, at, at this point, one can say, "Okay, so he was magnanimous. He he forgave everybody." But interesting thing is that everyone who came from Makkah to Medina through those years, who escaped the persecution in Makkah and came to Medina, they lost property, including himself. Right, his house was gone, his property was gone. Uh, they all lost property. The the interesting thing was that when he came to Makkah as a conqueror, not only did he forgive all of them. He did not even take compensation for what they lost. Now that's something that really, I mean, I when I read history, I, I think to myself, what must be going through his mind? It would be perfectly fair. I'm not talking about punitive fines or something. I'm just saying, you took my ten dollars, give them back, right? I mean, <laughs> don't give me eleven dollars. Just my ten dollars you gave, you you took, give them back. He didn't do any of that. And the the even more uh, interesting thing is that nobody requested him for it. None of those companions who lost the money, who lost their property, nobody told him. Nobody went to him and they said, "You know what? The oh, oh messenger of Allah, Ya Rasulullah, you know what? I mean, you want to forgive? That's fine. No problem. What about me? Yeah, I I want my stuff back. It, it's a reasonable thing. I mean, somebody could have said that. I mean, no one said that." Now that shows the, how much of a 
cultural change, how much of a change of heart there was in people. The whole concept of forgiveness, the whole concept of mercy. And forgiveness at a time when you are in power. I mean, when you are weak to say, I'm forgiving. Yeah, well, okay. So what else will you do anyway? I mean, you, you can't do anything anyway. So I'm forgiving. Big deal. But if I have the power and I have the ability to extract retribution, and I say, no, I forgive. Final story of forgiveness, which I want to end with that. The Prophet ﷺ was going to, uh, after uh, Makkah was, uh, after Makkah had been uh, conquered, uh, we are exactly at four, so I'll take two minutes more. Uh, after Makkah was conquered, uh, there was a there was a city called Taif, which had uh, which had declared war, and so the Prophet ﷺ took an army, and he was going to Taif. On the way, they the army stopped at uh, they camped at one point, and uh, Bilal bin Rabah radiallahu anhu the 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 uh, Mawazin, the you know the the person who calls the adhan. Uh, call for prayer. Bilal Radhiallahu called the Adhan. Now, interesting thing is, Bilal Radhiallahu was Abyssinian. So, here is a black African man. Same hierarchies among the Arabs of those times as well, right? In terms of racism and, uh, you know, who is uh, superior, who is inferior. Uh, there it was uh, not white supremacy, it was Arab supremacy. So, the Quraysh uh, were the top of the pile. So here is a, this Abyssinian guy who is uh, calling for the prayer. So some of the youth of Quraysh, and these were people who had newly come into Islam, so they, they didn't have the, they hadn't had the benefit of the company of the Prophet ﷺ and so on. So some of them, they started making fun and mocking uh, Bilal. And, and among the things they said was, they said, who's this crow and you know, all that kind of stuff. Right? So they were very derogatory. And they were mocking uh, Bilal bin Rabbaradiyaranu. Now, think about this. This is in the middle of an army camp. The Prophet ﷺ is the commanding general. Right? So, these guys also are, are soldiers. And they are trying to subvert the authority of a man who is the representative of the commanding general, Bilal bin Rabah. So, technically, that amounts to treason. It's, it's a serious matter. It's not just a matter of fun and games. So somebody reported this to the Prophet Sallallahu The Prophet Sallallahu summoned them. He said, call them. So there were seven or eight of them. These uh, young guys, they were summoned. So now obviously, uh, imagine if you are one of them, this is like serious bad news. Now what happens? You know, maybe I'm going to be hanged or my you know neck will be chopped off or something will happen. So the Prophet Sallallahu called them. So they came. Uh... He said to them, sit down, they sat. He said, which among you, who among you was making the most of this? Who among you was the most, uh, you know, loudest and... You, you can't hide that because everyone knows who it was. So they pointed to one of them and he was a man by the name of Abu Mahadura. Young man. So they pointed to him, this is Abu, Abu Mahadura. So, obviously, the next step is punishment, right? That's how it, theoretically, that's how it should work. But what does the Prophet ﷺ do? He says to Abu Mahadura, come close. 
So imagine, I, I always, I try to imagine this thing. I said, if I'm a Umaudura, I mean, say, oh my God, now he's calling me close. <laughs> he said, next thing I know, there's a, there's a sword on my neck or something, you know. He says, come close. He came close. He says to him, shall I teach you how to make the adhan? The call for prayer. Yeah, because he was mocking the call to prayer. He said, shall I teach you how to make the call for prayer? Now, Abu Mahadura would have said yes to anything because at that point in time. But Abu Mahadura says, yes, Ya Rasulullah, please show me. So the Prophet says to him, now repeat after me. And he says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Abu Mahadura repeats, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Abu Mahadura repeats, Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah. Ashadu anna Muhammad rasulullah. Ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah Abu Bahadur repeats Hayya al-salah Hayya al-salah Hayya al-falah Hayya al-falah Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar La ilaha illallah. Abu Mahadura repeats. And then Abu Mahadura says to him, He says, Ya Rasulullah. He says, O Messenger of Allah. Bilal is your muaddin. Bilal is your caller for prayer in Medina. He says, Make me your muaddin. In Makkah. He says, make me your caller for prayer in Makkah. So here is a man who was mocking the call for prayer. He is asking to be made the caller for prayer in Makkah. The Prophet said to him, you are my Muhaddin in Makkah. Now they have recorded this man. They said that he lived to be almost a hundred years old. And every day, five times a day, he would come into the haram in Makkah. He would make wudu, he would make tawaf around the Kaaba, and he would call the Adhan five times a day for the rest of his life. This is the power of mercy. No force can achieve this. This is the power of mercy. And mercy was the signature of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wa wasallam. He was the Prophet of mercy. His Lord sent him as a Prophet of mercy to all of creation. And this is how he demonstrated mercy.